particularly blessed to be able to preach here on a Sunday morning. I love preaching no matter what, but there's something very particularly amazing about preaching on Sunday morning. I love Wednesdays, don't get me wrong, I've preached on several Wednesdays, and if you don't come on Wednesday, you should. I like how I pointed, you should. But there's just something very, very special about preaching on Sunday morning. And I got serious this morning because I get to wear the, the special pastor's mic, so took it to a whole new level for me there. We have two passages of scripture that we're going to read this morning that's going to serve as our main text. And although they seem a little different, they do flow very closely together. So if you would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, starting with verse 1. And so you, you're ready. Put your finger also in Psalm 43. So John 11 and Psalm 43. I'd love to hear all the pages turning in this digital age where we're just flicking our finger and swiping the app. I love to hear those pages. John 11 and Psalm 43. And you might want to put like a little bookmark or something in those passages because we will be going back and forth on them. Now if you can... Please stand for the reading of God's word. John 11, we'll start there, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, for it is the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he had heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews are just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because his eyes, or because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to waken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. And Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that he was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been placed in the tomb four days Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, he went and met them, but Mary remained seated at the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had, not, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now let's look over at Psalm 43, just five short verses. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. 
from the deceitful and unjust man deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to my God, my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You may be seated. Two seemingly unrelated passages of Scripture, but fit so well together. When I was younger, my parents put me in a private Christian school, and they taught about prayer. Of course, it was a fundamentalist school, so they said, you have to pray, and you have to pray like this. And they gave me a whole list of things. But one of the things that they taught me was that God will answer your prayer one of three ways. Yes, no, or wait. As if God could be, you know, put into some kind of a box like that. Yes, no, or wait. That's how God will answer you. And so I took that at face value. I believed that. Kind of thought it through as I prayed and made my request to God. But what those unhelpful answers did not prepare me for is when I pray and God says nothing. Not a sound, not a peep, dead silence. And silence for a long time, nothing. And I want to talk about silence in the face of our prayers when we're praying for simple things like, should I buy this house or buy this car? Or what suit should I wear today or something? Not talking about that. I'm talking about when we pray, when I pray for those things that really matter the most, the things that I need God for the most. Trials, trouble that comes into my life, sickness, praying for a wayward family member, loss of a job, forced to move, those particularly difficult circumstances when I need God the most and I pray to him in those things and God says nothing. This is precisely what happened in John 11. Did you see it? Now, I want to be sure that we know that the primary purpose of this passage was to show that Christ had power over death, both physical death and also spiritual death. And at the word of Christ, the dead will be made alive, both physical and spiritual through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the primary purpose of this passage. But there's something else in this passage that I think the Lord wants us to see. And it's about the silence of God. Look here. At verse 2. We have a problem, don't we? And what's the problem? You can shout it out even though it's Sunday morning sermon, I know. What's the problem? Lazarus is? He's ill at this point. He's still ill in verse 2. He's, he's about to get there. Don't jump ahead. He's ill, right? He's sick. There is a problem. And his sisters are really worried about him because obviously it's a particularly difficult ill because what happens next? They seek after Jesus Christ. You see that in verse 3. It's the prayer, if you will. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. They were calling out for Jesus for help. Their brother was sick. They had some trouble in their life. It didn't look good. 
Maybe the doctors that they had of the day looked at him and said, there's just nothing I can do. I've done all that I can. He's ill, and it's not going to get better. And they said, I know. We need to seek Jesus Christ for this one. And that's what they did. They sent word to Jesus. That's the prayer, if you will. But then look at Jesus' response. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, this is verse 6, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He knew that Lazarus was ill. He knew it even before Mary and Martha sent word. But they sent word to him and said, Jesus, we have trouble. We need your help. And what was Jesus' response? Nothing. We have no record that he sent messengers back to Mary and Martha and say, I'm delayed, I'm going to be there, or there's something amazing that God is going to do in here, keep your faith. He didn't say any of that. He didn't pick up because he loved Lazarus. The passage says how much he loved these three people. He didn't immediately pick up, gather up the disciples, said, we've got to go over there and help them. He said nothing, and it seems like he did nothing. Well, in verse 14, bad went to worse. Not only was he sick, but his sick progressed to death. In the absence of God's word, the situation got worse. And at that point when Lazarus died, Mary and Martha still had not heard anything from God. And did you notice Mary's ang- or Martha's anguish here? Did you see it? Verse 21. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You see the faith there? I think she was crushed in her soul. She believed that if Jesus just said the word, Lazarus would have been made well. She knew that the solution to the problem was Jesus Christ, but Jesus didn't answer, and she had anguish in her heart, and she said, Lord, if you had just answered my prayer, my call, Lazarus would be here today. In a way, it's your fault. It's a difficult lesson, isn't it? That God's silence does happen. And it's probably more common than we would like to admit out loud, at least. Sometimes, you know, we think things in our mind. We know they're true. We don't want to say them out of our mouth, just in case. We don't want to say it out loud. But it's true. The silence of God is probably more common than we would like to believe. You can take it back to Abraham. I mean, think of Abraham. What a guy. He's this pagan. He's living in Ur of the Chaldees, the pagan center of the ancient world. I mean, ziggurats and all kinds of idolatry, crazy stuff going on. He's a pagan, and God just shows up out of the blue and says, Hey, Abram, I'm God. You're going to follow me. That's basically how it went down. And Abram said, I'm going to do it. I've got to follow God. And so they... Move him, and he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to a place, and I'll let you know when you get there. So keep walking uh, to the west. I'll let you know when you get there. And by faith, Abraham did that. And we have this close relationship between God and Abram. But what we don't realize is that there were about 10 years where we don't have any recorded conversations between God and Abraham through Genesis 12 and 16. 10 years. 
And then again after that, we have another 13 years of silence in between Genesis 17 and 18. Put yourself in Abram's place. Abram, who became Abraham. Not knowing who God is, this is something new, something different, and all of a sudden I'm following after this God that just introduced myself to me. Ten years of silence. And then God speaks, oh, it's great. Thirteen years of silence. He's still considered the man of faith, or the forefather of faith. What about Joseph? Tossed in the pit. God was speaking to him, gave him visions, telling him that he was going to be in this position of power and that his father and his mother and his brothers were all going to be worshiping down and being the impertinent youth. Had to announce that to everybody. And so he came out with the visions and God was speaking to him. And then he got tossed in a pit and sold into slavery by his brothers. Where was God? I'm quite sure Joseph was like, God, this is not the vision I just had. Speak to me. Tell me what's going on here. You don't have any recorded conversation at all. What about Job? We all know about poor Job, don't we? Went through all the circumstances that we pray to God would never happen to us. Job 30 and 31 in particular, the common refrain from Job is, answer me. You'll see that in several places. In fact, I think it's in Job 31 where there's an exclamation point in there. You know what an exclamation point means? Job looked at God and said, answer me, as loud as he could. What about David all throughout the Psalms? Commonly, God, where are you? I'm trusting you here, but you're not around. What's going on? What about the period in between Malachi and the book of Matthew, commonly called the 400 silent years? They're silent because we have no record of any kind of uh, authoritative God speaking to his people. They were anything but silent. You have the Greeks came and they conquered Israel. You had an emperor, a Greek emperor named Antiochus, who came into the temple of Jerusalem when he sacked and he got tired of the Jewish people. He tried working with them a little bit, but then they wouldn't conform, as they shouldn't have. He went into the temple of God, slaughtered pigs on God's altar in the Holy of Holies spread the blood all around the place so that everything in that holy site would be desecrated and defiled. I'm quite sure there were many Jews saying, God, help us. Nothing. Then you had the Romans conquer the Greeks and therefore annex Israel as part of their empire, putting the heavy hand of the, the empire upon that area. I'm sure there were a great many Jews that called out, God, where are you? Help me. Silence. I'm thinking about Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas being uh, arrested and beaten for interrupting commerce. Stripped naked and beaten to the edge of their life and thrown in jail. And not just any jail, but in the inner parts of the jail. So there was no possibility of escape whatsoever. It wasn't any recorded word of God until God broke the jail apart for them. What about modern people? We'll skip and go into the modern world. C.S. Lewis, I think you've heard of him, right? C.S. Lewis was struggling with his grief one day, and he said, he wrote this, why is God so present, a commander in our time of prosperity, and so very absent, a help in our time of trouble? He was experiencing the silence of God in his grief. How about another modern person? You and I. Have we ever encountered a time 
when God was silent, no matter how hard we prayed, no matter how frequently we prayed, no matter how often we would draw other people into our prayers, we pray and we pray and God says nothing. You might be in that situation right now where you are seeking after the Lord and you hear nothing. And I know it's not much help to know that this is a common thing for among believers. Because when you're in the middle of it, it hurts so badly. But the scripture not only provides these examples of people who have experienced God's silence, but he also provides the truth and how he wants us to handle these situations. And before we get into those steps, I want to remind you and encourage you, God will not be silent forever. There will be a time when he breaks through the silence and he speaks clearly into your situation and he lifts that cloud and gives you light. Hang on. So let's go into some of these tips and we see them here, especially in John 11 and Psalm 43. So if you are taking notes, I guess this be your number one. Never, if you're experiencing the silence of God, and you, if you haven't experienced that, and you're looking at me like I have two heads, there will be a time where you'll have that moment in your life where you will experience God's silence. And so if you haven't done that, take some notes because this is how God is going to get you through that. Never, ever, ever give up trusting in the Lord. Never give up trusting in the Lord. You see, when we pray and we're seeking the face of God, our temptation is to what? Get frustrated, right? Get angry. Throw in the towel. Or you could do like I've done in the past, God forgive me, where I throw God's word right into his face like it's a contract. God, you said, this is what your word said. This is what you said. And we get all angry and stirred up and confused. Never fall into that temptation. You see, we can respond in one of two ways. See, in, in John 11, we hadn't really talked about Mary yet, have we? We've only looked at Martha. Let's look at Mary real quick. In verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Flip over to 28, and verse 28 and 29. So when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Mary didn't want to do what Martha did. Now, I'm not saying Mary did anything bad. She was overcome with grief. But her initial fleshly response was not to meet Jesus. Martha was going to do that. She was going to meet Jesus. Now remember, Jesus had not quite gone into that exact town. He was just outside of the town. And Mary or Martha heard that he was there and ran out to meet Jesus. Mary decided, I'm just going to stay here. There's no hope. That's our response. That's our temptation when things go wrong in our lives and we're praying for help and God doesn't seem to answer. We are tempted to say, what's the point? I've been praying for this. God's not answering me. I'm praying and it feels like the prayers are bouncing off the ceiling coming right back. Did you ever feel that way or is it just me? 
you pray and you just feel like the prayers are ineffective. God's not listening. He's got his hands over his ears or something like that. That's what it seems like at times. That's what Mary was doing. She was home. She was not going to meet Jesus. But Martha gives us a great example. See, 21 and 22. Well, we, we know that she came to Jesus, but this is really what's interesting. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. Even Martha was without a, I mean, she was struggling with what happened here, but she had a divided heart, didn't she? She came to Jesus. She knew he was in town, and he, she ran out to meet Jesus. She wasn't satisfied with sitting in her room and feeling sorry for herself or wallowing in her grief, though serious it was. She ran out and met with Jesus, even though she had a divided heart. And you say, well, what's the divided heart? She had a heart of anguish. Lord, if you had just answered my prayer, Lazarus would have been here, but... I know that whatever you ask for from the Lord, he'll give it to you. You see that divided heart there? She had sorrow and she had hope at the same time. But the point was is that she came to Christ. My, the scriptures are encouraging us today, come to Christ. Even though you may not hear him, you may not see him, you may not feel like it in your life, Come to God. Don't give up on him, even if your heart is divided. Because you know what the good news is? God knows what's in your heart. He knew what would be in your heart even before you became cognizant of that fact. He knows your heart's divided. He knows on the one hand you're mad at him, and he knows on the other hand you still hope in him in Jesus Christ. So you might as well come to him, push forward, and meet him. David did that too in Psalm 43. He says... You, this is verse 2, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. What a statement of faith. You are the God in whom I take refuge. Oh, we're not done with the verse. Hang on. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Even David at this point had a divided heart within him. He knew who God was. He had faith in God. He was the one he turned to God, but he was still struggling with God's silence. Now, in this passage, he's dealing with people that were oppressing him and coming after him. But you can insert whatever situation is in your life right now where you're hoping in God. You know he's the one you should turn to, but then you still struggle when God doesn't answer. Never give up trusting. Be like David be like Martha. Press into Jesus Christ. He'll be with you. Trust that God is not, not indifferent to your situation. Oh, here's where the, the tempter really likes to come into our lives. Something bad is happening. Trouble. Things get bad. Then they get worse. Then they even get more worse. Then they get worse. Then they get even more worse than they were before. And no matter how often you pray, God is not answering you. You've had other people pray. You got your name on the prayer list, and you still don't hear God respond. And the tempter comes in. Good old Satan himself. And he, I often think that we give him far too much credit because all he does is just play with our sinful hearts and our emotions and brings the things up that are already inside of us. 
But he likes us to think, this great God of yours, he doesn't care about you. You are but dust. Isn't it true? I mean, we are but dust in the sight of God. You are but dust. You see, God cares about the big things, not about the little details of your life. Have you ever felt that too? God, God provided Christ and he provided salvation. But he really, he doesn't need to be involved in these little things that you're worried about. God doesn't care. Oh, but scripture paints such a different picture, doesn't it? In John 11, look at what Jesus, how he reacts in verse, hop over to verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, this is Mary at this point, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Look at verse 35. Jesus wept. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. How many times do we need to see that Jesus was greatly troubled and moved in his soul emotionally before we get the picture that Jesus is never indifferent to the things that we are going through? Satan wants you to believe, your own sinful heart wants you to believe that Jesus doesn't care, but the opposite is the truth. He cares deeply, and when he saw them weeping, he knew how they felt in their heart. It's when he saw them weeping. That's when he was overcome with emotion himself. Now, let's remember, this whole situation was orchestrated by Jesus in the first place. He waited, delayed his answer, two full days before meeting with them. And it would seem like he didn't care. In fact, that's kind of Martha's implication a little bit, wasn't it? If you had only been here when we called you, my brother wouldn't be dead. I wouldn't be in this anguish whatsoever. That's the implication. But the opposite is so true. Jesus cares about what you're going through. And he not only cares about what you're going through, he cares about how you feel too. Sometimes we forget that God created emotion. We want to become so rigid in the way that we approach God. We try to jettison emotions because we, we know emotions are tainted by the fall. And that's true. But never forget that God created emotions and he cares about how you feel. And if Jesus was moved this deeply at the sight of seeing his people struggle, how much more is he moved deeply when he sees you struggle with the things in life? He cares. He's not cruel. He's not playing games with you. That's what humans do. Humans get to positions of power. Fallen humans like to manipulate other human beings. They like to toy with them and play games. I mean, look at Nero for crying out loud. Roman Empire. Toying with Christians, blaming them for the fire that he set in the city of Rome. Torching Christians so he could walk in his garden at night. Setting them ablaze. God could not be further from that. That's why he's, Nero is considered an antichrist. 
complete opposite of Jesus Christ. God is not cruel. He's not led you into the circumstances where you are. He's not withholding his answer from you because he wants to be mean, cruel, because he likes to see you struggle, because he says, ah, look at this. This guy didn't have any faith whatsoever. That's how our brains would like to think, and that's the temptation. He's a God of love, compassion, and mercy, and he cares where you are right now. God is not absent. How could God be absent? If God is absent, this world would end. Absence is merely our perception. And what we perceive is not the reality. So we have to never give up trusting in the Lord and trusting that he's not indifferent to your circumstances. We need to trust in the character of God. We know and we see that Jesus is moved with compassion. But what is God like? Do we forget so quickly how amazing and wonderful our great God is? Yes, unfortunately, we do. We have to remember the gospel of Jesus Christ, where God, despite everything we've done against him, either born in sin and then shaking our fist at God throughout our life, decided nonetheless to call you, choose you before time began, and to provide his son who would take the punishment that you and I deserved upon himself. That's a good God. That's a God that adopts you into his family. Despite being an enemy of God, he decides to adopt you and make you, as Scripture says, a co-heir with Jesus. Not just last in line. A co-heir with Jesus Christ. This is God's character. He's good. He is just. He is holy. But his justice for you, believer, was poured out on Jesus Christ. He's not chastising you out of some cruelty or try to get you back for what you did or to punish you for something that you've done. Granted, God will allow us to walk through consequences, won't he? I sometimes pray, God, don't let me go through those consequences. But those consequences are sometimes what God allows us to go through. But that's not because he's trying to get us back for what we did. He's trying to teach us and make us more like his son. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to look at verse 5. And in Hebrews, he's kind of closing out his book here, his letter to the Hebrew people. And he's giving them some, some practical steps on how to live rightly before God and before people, how to live holy lives. And you have Hebrews 13 and verse 5. God says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now the author was quoting the book of Deuteronomy. And interesting, he, he said, he didn't say keep your life free from money, did he? No. He said keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Not even just money. Be content with where you are right now. Whatever your circumstance is, be content. How can I be content? Because Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's a promise I want to hang on to for the rest of my life. 
Because even though God may be silent in my life, I can hang on to the fact that he is good, he is trustworthy, he loved me before the foundation of the world, and he will never leave me nor forsake me. That's what you hold on to. We trust in God's character. We trust he's doing something in our life. He was doing something. Jesus was doing something in Mary and Martha's life there. He was doing something in the lives of people who were witnessing this situation. He was doing something in David's life. What is he doing in your life? You may not know. But we do know what Romans 8.28 says, don't we? For God works all things for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. What is the purpose of God? That we might glorify and believe on the Son. If you are called according to that purpose, that he is working everything, 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 everything out for your good. may not feel good at the time, but it's being worked out for your good. And what's the greatest good? That we would be like Jesus Christ. And everything, that circumstance you're dealing with, that you've been praying for and you don't see answers, you don't hear God speaking to you. You read the word and nothing is really jumping off the page at you. You're praying with other people and they don't have any encouragement for you. And you're struggling. Hold on. Don't give up. Trust that he's not indifferent to your circumstances. Trust in his character because he's working something out for your good. Trust it. God's word will never return in void. He's doing something in your life. So... Number one was never give up trusting in the Lord. Number two, actively seek after God. Now here's where we're going to jump to Psalm 43 a little bit more. Actively seek after God. We saw that Mary went to Jesus. He wasn't even in town yet, and he was kind of camped out just outside of town. Mary went to Jesus. She actively sought Jesus. Here's David. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And then he prays. He seeks out after God. And what does David do first? He speaks to God. It's so sad that we have to be reminded that in these times that we need to speak to God. This isn't the temptation to be kind of like Mary. Again, I'm not saying she's doing anything wrong. She's, a, she's deeply in grief here. But she did not seek after Jesus until Jesus sought after her. Martha got up and met Jesus. David, in the middle of the oppression, immediately changed his tune, didn't he? It's almost like a, like a difference here in, in what, he's, what he's doing. He's, why is this happening to me? I put my trust in you. I'm being oppressed. I'm... God, I come to you. I speak to you. You're like, well, Brian, you're talking about praying, right? Yes, I am talking about praying. But here's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about praying for your situation. Because the more you're praying about your situation, the more you're getting frustrated because God's not answered. I want you to change how you pray and what you pray for. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it myself just for the sake of time. But in Matthew chapter 6, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they like to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Different world, different time. You do that now, they'll shoot you. 
Uh, truly, I say to you, when they have received their reward. But when you pray, go to your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Here's the key. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. So, so interesting. I, doing a, I was at a prayer service one time and, and it was one of those open mic prayer services and you had a group of people praying and, and you know, if you felt led by the Lord, you know, get up and pray. And, and this woman got up and she started praying out loud. And in the middle of this prayer, she kept saying, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. And I wish I had a quarter for every time she said, in Jesus' name, I'd be a wealthy man to this day. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. It was empty words heaped up over and over again because she thought, if I just say, in Jesus' name again, God is bound to answer my prayer. And that's how we get sometimes when we pray, especially when we're frustrated, especially when these times are difficult and we struggle so much and we pray the same thing over and over and over and over. And it's just a bunch of useless, empty words. I'd love for you to turn there, but we don't really have a lot of time. But it's one of my favorite Old Testament passages only because it has my level of snark in it. Really, it's snarky. I'm just being serious. And it's, you have Elijah versus the, show, the showdown of Elijah versus the prophets of Baal. Do you remember that, that story? Elijah versus the prophets of Baal. He's the only prophet around. And you have all these prophets of Baal. And that becomes the predominant religion, of course, at the time. And Elijah's like, all right, I'm going to set the situation up for you. Here's what we're going to do to prove who God is. I'm going to set up an altar here. You set up whatever altar you think you need to set up over there. We're going to put the animals on the altar. We're not going to light the altars. We're each going to take turns. We're going to call upon our God. And if the fire comes down from the sky and burns up the altar, then you know that God is real. Okay, so Elijah's giving them enough rope to hang themselves. And so that's what they did. They set it up. And so Elijah says, I'll defer to you. Let you guys... You do your thing. And they took, and this is the prophets of Baal, it's in 1 Kings 18, you can look at it on your own. And they took the bowl that was given to them, they prepared it, and they cried out from morning until noon, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. Any surprise? And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them. Here's where the snark comes in. Cry aloud, for he's a god, either he's musing, or he's relieving himself. Yes, he went there. Or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. These are the empty words that the prophets of Baal were calling out to their God over and over again. And we tend to think like Elijah there, don't we sometimes? I know there have been times in my life, and I've even said it to my wife. God's not answering. She said, are you praying? Are you seeking after the Lord in this situation? I am God is not answering. She's like, well, keep praying. I'm like, well, God's taking a walk somewhere across the universe. I've said that. God, forgive me. I've said that before because that's how it felt. It's just a funny passage with snark in that. And we tend to get that way to God. We have to change how we pray. I could keep going, but Elijah, when it's his turn, very simple prayer. God, I ask you just like this thing, and then everyone's going to know that you're real and that you're the one true God. 
And sure enough, that's when fire came down from heaven. We change how we pray. We pray in faith, knowing that God hears us, even though we may not hear him. It's an interesting thing. That when we pray and we seek after God, we don't hear from God. We automatically assume God doesn't hear us. When it's only us that's not hearing God, God always hears the prayers of his people. We change how we pray because when we pray frenetically, oh God, please help me in this situation. Please, please, please. You know, you clench your fists and you give, I pray really hard. Or like that woman in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Because you no longer have faith that God is listening. Or you wouldn't pray that way. Because you think if you pray just in the right way, in the right manner, at the right time, then all of a sudden God will hear you. It doesn't work that way. He's a good God. He's our Father. He listens to us. You may not hear him, but he always, always hears you. We change how we pray. We change what we pray for. Look back at Psalm 43. You see what he prayed for? He, said, he didn't say anything, not a whiff about his circumstances. Once he got past the, the being upset about, I'm being oppressed, God, you're not answering me, he quiets his heart and then he starts to pray, and he doesn't pray about that situation anymore. Isn't it interesting? What does he pray for? Verse 3. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Your light and your truth. Isn't that interesting? David knew he was in the dark. He knew that he was spiritually blind to something here, and he needed God to give him some light so he could see. Even Jesus said that in John 11. He tells the disciples, we walk around during the day so we could see. When you're in darkness, you stumble. He's talking about spiritual things. If you're in the dark spiritually, of course you're going to stumble. You're not going to know the will of God or the plan of God. But David here prays, give me some light. He knew his heart was divided. He knew on the one hand he was putting his hope and trust in God, and he knew on the other hand he was starting to lose his hope and trust in God, and he was getting mad with God. I need some light. And we get that way too. It's okay to come to God and say, I believe God, I just don't feel it right now. It's perfectly okay to pray to God. You don't have to come to God and act like you're something you're not. That's what a hypocrite does. And Jesus said, don't be like the hypocrites. Be honest with God because he already knows you. He already knows what you're feeling, what you're thinking, what's going on in your life. So you might as well be honest with him. God, I believe. I just don't feel it right now. Help me. Give me some light. What about the, uh, in Mark chapter 9, the father who had a demon-possessed son. And the disciples tried to cast this thing out and it didn't work. And so he meets Jesus, and Jesus is like, tell me what's going on. And he goes into this litany of everything that happens when this boy, he goes into the circumstances. It is litany of stuff that happens when this boy is possessed. He gets throw, he throws him in the fire, tries to drown himself. We try to chain him up, and he breaks the chains. No one can hold this guy. He's going on and on. And Jesus like interrupts his train of thought and says, do you believe? You know what his answer was? The most honest prayer anyone could ever pray. I believe, help my unbelief. See that divided heart? I believe, help my unbelief. 
Did Jesus rebuke him? No. He cast the demon out of that boy. Didn't rebuke him for his painful honesty of how he was feeling. I believe. Help my unbelief. We need the light. When we come to God, we pray, God, I believe. I just don't feel it. I need your light. I'm praying like David prayed. Open my eyes. Let me see. But David didn't stop there. He said, send out your light and your truth. Why did he say that? Because the truth is what you get when you have the lights. Do you ever go around your house in the dark and you've been living in that house, the same furniture arrangement for many, many years, and when you have to get up in the middle of the night, especially me, and I don't have, gla- I don't have my glasses on, it's dark. I know where everything is in the house. And for some reason, I still misjudge distances. Oh, I know the TV is here, here, and I know the couch is there, and I still end up stumbling around. I need light so I can see what's going on. We need light so we can see the truth of God. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And he said, all scripture testifies of me. We need the word of God in our life. We cannot say that God is silent when our Bible is closed. You can't. We make ourselves to be liars. God speaks primarily through his word, and he doesn't stop speaking it. Every single page, God is talking to you. He may not tell you what color suit to wear a particular day, but he tells you about your heart. He tells you about your son. He tells you about how to trust in him. He tells you that, that don't worry about what you wear or what you eat or where you sleep because your father knows you need those things. He takes care of the lilies of the valley. He takes care of the birds. How much more is he going to take care of you because he loves you? He tells you those kinds of things. He leads you in life. We can't complain that God is silent when our Bible is closed. Complaining about God being silent when our Bible is closed is like complaining that we don't get texts when our phone is turned off. It's the truth. And I've done that before. Someone's texting me. They say they're texting me. I didn't get any of your texts. Oh, my phone's off. I'm complaining that God is not speaking to me, but I haven't written, read his word in a month, in a week, in a few days. Why do you want God to talk to you? Do you want it all of a sudden write on the wall? No, you don't want that because the writing on the wall in the Old Testament was bad. He's not going to get the divine skywriter in the sky and craft you a message. He's not going to come out of the blue and say, Brian, son of Robert. He's going to speak to you through the word. He's going to show you his son. He will speak to you. You've got to get in the word. That's why you have to pray. You have to look for that light and you have to look for the truth. Psalm 1, the blessed man. He delights in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. We need the word because it's objective. The objective word, not the subjective impressions of our fluctuating emotions. Today I feel strong enough to handle this. Tomorrow I don't feel so strong anymore. Now I'm mad at God because he's not answering my prayer. But I get a little bit of strength thanks to the grace of God the next day. And I feel, see how I go up and down in dealing with God. We need the objective word of God to feed our soul and give us light. We don't have time to go, but I encourage you to read 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4. 
So we, we come to God and we, we can't let go. We have to keep pressing on to seeing God. We need to speak to God, changing our prayers and what we pray, how we pray them. And we need to do what, G, what David says next. Then I will go to the altar of God. Verse 4. Now, do we have a physical altar? Even churches that have a little table up front and they call it the altar, that's not the altar. Even though there are some churches that have an altar call, this is not an altar. What is the altar? The altar is the cross of Jesus Christ. Our altar is Jesus Christ crucified, risen, and standing before the throne of God. That is our altar. The gospel of Christ coming to him in faith, trusting in him, laying our burdens down at the foot of Jesus Christ believing in him who took our sin and all the wrath that we deserved. Come to God's altar. Experience God, as he says in the very next line, as my exceeding joy. I like that word, exceeding joy. Is it wrong for me to have joy in my wife? No. Is it wrong for me to have joy in my children? No. Is it wrong for me to have joy in my work? Absolutely not. It's wrong if any one of those things or all of those things become our exceeding joy, the joy above all others. You see, David has said, when I pray, I'm going to seek light and I'm going to seek truth and that's going to motivate me to come to the cross. I'm going to come to the altar of God. Then I'll realize just how amazing God is and he becomes my overarching joy in all things. See, when God is silent, he starts taking those little things out of our life, doesn't he? Those trials. He starts removing things from our life. And that's when we get all stirred up and upset. Why did you take that away? I remember one time something that I owned broke down in my house and it wasn't going to work anymore. And I loved it so much. Probably had something to do with the entertainment center, I'm sure. And I remember just moaning and groaning about it because I didn't have any money to replace it. And I remember my wife, clear as day, look at me and be as blunt as she needed to be to get through this thick skull. And she said, well, quite the altar you had there. You remember that? Quite the altar you had there. Yeah. Okay, conviction. (laughs) That's when these things in our life that we're wrestling with and we're angry with and we're angry with God with, they became the thing that eclipsed God in our life. David is saying, I need to remember that God is my exceeding joy. And then verse, the rest of verse four, and then I will praise you with the lyre. I'll worship you. She can't put the cart before the horse. And sometimes when you're struggling with things, people will counsel you, just worship. It's like telling somebody who's depressed, cheer up. You can't put the cart before the horse. You have to go and pray for light and truth who will guide you to the altar of God, who will guide you to remember that Jesus is your exceeding joy, who will then cause you to worship. And then just very quickly, speaking to God, then you speak to yourself. Look what he says there. Why are you downcast? He turns his attention from God to himself. Why are you downcast, oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? What's the matter with you, David? That's what he's saying. I have a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I'm going to not say this in his accent, which I think is really neat. Medical doctor, theologian, 
pastor of Westminster Chapel, have you not realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they're talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Someone is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now this man's treatment in this psalm was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you downcast, O my soul? He asks. His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, Self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you now. Oh, that we would do that. That we would take those thoughts into captivity and we start speaking the word of Christ into our own lives. That we don't wait till we come to church on Sunday and perhaps a Wednesday, and you should come on Wednesday, and perhaps a Wednesday or a BFG or a Bible study to get the word spoken into our life. That we pick up the word that we're reading and we speak it to ourselves. We preach the gospel to ourselves. We remind ourselves of the goodness of Almighty God, that he is not indifferent to us, that he cares, and we just hold on because he hears me even though I can't hear him. It's not the most comforting thing to know that the silence of God is common and it happens. But take heart that God will not be silent forever. He won't. There will be a time when he breaks that silence with his marvelous voice. Respond to him. Don't give up. Press in to Jesus Christ. Speak to God, asking for light, asking for truth. Don't ask him about your circumstances. Put that aside for a moment. Here he knows. Come to him. Realize that he's your exceeding joy. Come to God's altar and speak to yourself the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you will experience joy that you have never thought possible. And even if God still withholds his voice, you've just become more like Christ. And you understand and you know and you believe that God is good. Let's pray. Father Almighty, we come before you. And we freely admit that there are times that you are silent. You may not like it. You may not feel good. But we also have to admit, those of us who are here by faith in your Son, that we believe. We're just not feeling it today. We believe that I'm struggling with being angry with you, God, over this. Forgive us for our anger or frustration. I know they're misplaced. Help us to remember, O oh Lord, that Jesus even took that for us. That we still can come boldly before your throne, even if we're frustrated with you. You care for us. You love us. Drive us to your word, to your light. Help us not to give up. And I ask for a special blessing upon your people. That if you've been silent with them, that you would... Reduce the time that it takes before you speak into their lives yet again. But until that time comes, minister them through the power of your spirit and your word. In Jesus' name, amen.